This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the Bond Report on this Wednesday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. Let's bring in our Bloomberg News Global Economics and Policy Editor, Kathleen Hayes. So, first Fed meeting of the year, last Fed meeting for Chair Janet Yellen. Um, what if... What are your thoughts here? Well, first of all, let's just note that um, the long end of the Treasury curve has gained in the last hour. Mm -hmm. um, there was an uh, initial, uh, I think, a lot of movement, everybody, a lot of movement up, and then everybody, well, there really wasn't much of a change. But for the long end, the, the now down, excuse me, now up, 18.30 seconds uh, in price, the yield's at 2.941. The yield was at uh, 2.968 just before the policy statement came out. Mm -hmm. Minor tweaks, small adjustments. People were looking for oh, we're going to get a hawkish statement. Maybe Janet Yellen's going to want to look at the economy and tax cuts and let everybody know that, hey, you know, I'm leaving the Fed, kind of changing my view. Um, as one of my colleagues on the Fed team wrote, Matt Bosler, uh, or no, he was quoting an, an analyst, she goes out more, with not a whimper, but quietly, not with some big bang. There were, again, some minor adjustments, according to um, Stephen Stanley over at Amherst Pierpont. The, the most important tweak is the FOMC appearing to upgrade its inflation forecast uh, in December. The 12-month inflation rate was expected to remain somewhat below 2% in the near term, but today they indicated it's expected to move up this year. I think the most the most clear thing people are coming away saying is this cements the March rate hike. Mm -hmm. As uh, one comment said, but we're going to continue to watch the data. If, if you had to say, did it lean one way or the other? Yeah, maybe slightly more hawkish, but it kind of confirmed what people are expecting. As far as any big change, you don't see it. Uh, another story on the Bloomberg, though, noting that... Um, there are end-of-month flows mm -hmm. going into the longer end of the curve, and that's probably why, one of the reasons we're seeing people buying the long end of the curve, flattening a bit. Uh, so maybe that's counterintuitive, but I, th I think a combination— So really just a response to the bids that are coming in at this time. Yeah, of the and the fact that there was no big surprise here. All right, let's—okay, so there we have it in terms of the uh, FOMC meeting. Let's talk about, to the, if any surprises in the batch of economic data that we got today. Uh, we, got, we have with us, uh, of course, our Bloomberg Intelligence senior U.S. economist— uh, Bloomberg Economics, I should say, senior U.S. economist Yelena Shaletova. Uh, Yelena, we did have a batch of data today. Yes, and one of the most important uh, data releases was the employment cost index uh, that we received mm -hmm. today, which, again, confirmed gradual improvement in wage inflation. So nothing extraordinary, nothing to be alarmed about. Inflation is still under control, but gradual progress on the um, wage inflation front is very positive. So ECI on a year-on-year -year basis hit 2.6%, and that matched uh, the recent peak, 
we and and we see this slightly steady uh, growing trajectory, which is positive. And uh, I which think is what we would expect to see in this point of the economic cycle, right? We'd start to see wages increase. Absolutely, and uh, I think that actually uh, filtered into the Fed's uh, statement uh, as mm-hmm. they acknowledged. Uh, modest improvement uh, in inflation. In yeah, Yelena, what did you think of this statement? Did you get any takeaways from that? Again, to me, this was probably the most uh, the 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 most no- notable uh, improvement, uh, the inflation upgrade. So they not only upgraded the inflation language itself, but they also acknowledged a pickup, even the modest one, in inflation expectations. What? So that is telling us that uh, they are getting more confident in uh, achieving the inflation target. What I thought, too, was collectively acknowledging stronger growth and more confidence that inflation will rise to the 2% target, right? There's been a fair amount of debate about whether or not we need to rethink this inflation target, right? We've had Ben Bernanke raise, you know, saying that maybe there could be a conversation over the next well, 12 you know, to 18 months. I don't months. think this precludes, I don't think this precludes at all the fact that they may still rethink mm-hmm. that target. What right. they're saying is, yeah, we, we think it's going to go up there this year instead of just gradually rising, which I think that will encourage some people to say, oh, four rate hikes. No. You know, I think some people are sticking with their they're, – they're the minority, but sticking with their four-rate hike view. I think it's two different things. They're Whatever they're trying to signal – and to a certain extent, they're just acknowledging what they see in the in the economy right now. And again, it just makes them all have a firmer footing that much more for the first rate hike for Jay Powell in March. For, for us, I mean, it has to – inflation has to pick up uh, much more aggressively for them to change uh, – to uh, mm-hmm. more hikes this year. It's, you guys still calling for two? We're still calling for two, but uh, we will like change our view if we see, um, you know, some uh, some weak inflation. Are you data so, dependent too? We are data dependent, <laughs> and uh, there's been uh, a lot of uh, movement in the dollar recently. Yeah. So the dollar has been weakening, and that is very so inflationary. Kind of like paycheck to paycheck. They're, they're data to data dependent. Yeah. So <laughs> if we do yeah. see an inflation pickup, in in other words, uh, like a stronger one, we might uh, reconsider. Well, there's fewer chances now. They've only got 11 more chances to raise this year. Well, that's well, not really 11 because they can't do it every month. But uh, but I, I, I one thing I'd like to throw in about the employment cost index uh, is that it's it's not risen very much. It has raised a little. Um, there are some other factors maybe going on. I think this is it's it's like I, I think you're right to to emphasize how much more it has to go. This is such a minor improvement, mm-hmm. right? It's still way below the peaks we saw in other eras of growth, and it may never get that much because the way the world has changed with technology and globalization. But it's still just a, a I think it's more of a hopeful sign than it is a confirmation that that mm-hmm. tight labor market has caused some new acceleration in wages. Yeah, great points, uh, Kathleen. And I think I I like to look at uh, the components uh, by industry. So if you look at the components of of the employment cost index by industry, you'll see like a a lot of improvement in transportation. So this is like coming with uh, all these changes in online trading, replacing brick and mortar stores. So you see a lot of demand for these professions. You see a pickup in ADP report for transportation uh, sector. And you also see a big pickup in uh, employment cost index for that industry. In fact, that index uh, for transportation, I think more than double doubled uh, in the last hmm. four years. So here is your Phillips curve at work, but only in the given industry. Where is it weakest in terms of wage increases? Uh, I think, let me see. So well, the, that is like... Um, well, while you do that, I'm just going to say that the company which makes Twinkies, finance. Ding Dongs, and Ho-Hos is providing its employees a one-time payment of 
in cash. To be paid in ho-hos. In the form of a 401k (laughs) contribution. And apparently, they're going to get free food, too. Better than nothing. Mm. Ho-hos, too. Better than nothing. Just saying. Notably, the the weakest (laughs) one is finance. So all big bonuses are gone, I guess. Uh, in the finance industry. All right. Anybody? <laughs> One-time bonuses any, any are not raises, <laughs> so permanent changes in the economy right. are not happening here. We're just seeing a lot of bonuses. There you go. But Twinkies Corey's are awesome. As a producer, yes. Paul Brennan, he would know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Kathleen Hayes, Speaking Global Twinkies, Economics and Policy Editor, Yelena Shalitiva, Senior U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics. This is Bloomberg. Doctor, my eyes. Tell me what you see. I hear their cry. Dr. Kenneth Davis joins us right now, CEO of Mount Sinai Health Systems, uh, for a look at what uh, what these this sort of amazing group of companies might be up to when we see Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and, and J.P. Morgan uh, trying to find a new way to deal with health care costs for their workers and perhaps more. Uh, Dr. Davis, it, 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 I, this is a fun story to, to work on because it's a fun thing to think about, sort of. I mean, fun is not the right word. An interesting thing to think about. What is the biggest problem with our rising health care costs? We had a guest on yesterday who said people are just too damn old. I, I couldn't agree. I agree with that every day, more and more well, so. But well, besides you know, that, what is, what's the problem? Well, the problem is it's too big a percentage of GDP, and we all don't have a great idea what to do about it. Um, there is a sense that the system now rewards um, performance over quality. It it rewards uh, actions and doing things to people rather than paying for outcomes. So what we have is a fee-for-service system in which the incentives are to do more because you get paid every time you do something, as opposed to a system in which you get paid a fixed amount and uh, that amount doesn't change. Um, in fact, what you might get is rewards if patients have better quality, better outcomes, stay out of the hospital or avoid readmissions. That's called the system of population management or value. Um, we're trying to move to that, but it's been going at a glacial pace. Well, it's interesting. You said it's a system that rewards performance versus outcome. It's really like rewards frequency versus It rewards outcome. frequency, right. It rewards activity. Um, so there's a lot of activity. You know. So how do we, it, how do we change it? Because I feel like the healthcare system has become such a financial juggernaut, uh, and you know people are rewarded. You know, uh, drug companies get rewarded if more doctors prescribe prescriptions. Uh, I'm not targeting anybody in particular, but I'm just saying you use more of this stuff. There's more right. demand for it. And there's more money that goes through the system. Not to mention that there's, you know, the healthcare, like many other industry groups, have become huge lobbyists down in Washington. So they have the ear of lawmakers. Well, imagine if a large hospital system identified a few hundred thousand patients that were with a particular insurance company. And that insurance company said, guys, to the hospital, here's what we're going to do. We're paying you a fixed amount of money. We agreed to it at the beginning of the year. And that's how much you're going to get no matter what you do to those patients. An HMO. Well, it's pretty much what was the HMO idea. We pay per capita. And then suddenly the system says, wow, the only way we have a margin here is to make sure we keep people well. 
because if those people keep getting readmitted and they keep seeing the doctor all the time and we do test after test, we're just going to eat up that amount of money they gave us at the beginning of the year and we're going to run a big deficit. So suddenly we align payers, providers, and patients all to have the same thing in mind, and that is to be as cost-efficient as possible and have the best outcomes we possibly can have. So, but is this pool large enough? I mean, a pool of, of these three companies large enough for them well, to create something? Like, it seems to me that there are other things that these guys are going to do other than just say, let's make everybody stay healthy. That they're, right. going to, they're going to look at things. So let me ask you about cost. Is, uh, is J.P. Morgan, I'm thinking of the Chase part of J.P. Morgan, are they in a position to actually know better what drugs actually cost and how much they're paying for them across a system of three companies such that they can ha strike better deals with uh, common drug providers? Well, there is a persistent thought that um, Amazon is going to get into the drug distribution business. And when they do, they can take PBMs you know, the benefit managers, the pharmacy benefit managers out of the equation. Um, that allows there to be some new money in the system that can be saved. So it's possible that Amazon, negotiating directly with Big Pharma, is going to get the same good prices that PBMs do, and they are not going to put it in the pocket of the PBMs, but they're going to pass that on through, and that clearly is going to decrease cost. So, so can I just, because we've got about a minute left here, and I know healthcare is never an easy problem, and you could use hours and hours to discuss it. Having said that, what needs to be the first step towards a smarter healthcare system where people are getting good care? Um, and not missing out on care, but the costs aren't escalating all over the place. I think we have to realign the system, manage care better, identify those patients who are the high consumers of care, navigate them, case manage them, prevent disease in those high utilizers as best we can. Um, we've been able to successfully do that. I think this can be done on a much larger scale. So if I'm Amazon, J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, what I'm saying is I've got the algorithms in-house to do the predictive analytics on who are going to get sick and who's been using a lot of health care, and I'm going to identify those people a priori, and I'm going to really focus them on wellness programs. Um, I'm going to have them see the doctor as frequently as they should mm -hmm. so that we can avoid the big catastrophes at the end. Yeah, it's a major rethink, but, you know, it's certainly long overdue, and that's why you've got the frustrations among the folks over at Amazon, Berkshire, and J.P. Morgan coming together. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Davis, thank you so much for your time again. President, Chief Executive Officer at Mount Sinai Health System. Dr. Davis joining us on the phone in New York City. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets right here on Bloomberg Radio. People often ask me what Dave Wilson looks like when he's not on the radio. And I tell him he's kind of your average Rastafarian, long dreads, uh, often up in a big hat. Don't worry about a thing. He's here, Dave Wilson, our stock editor. I just don't know where With to begin, Corey. I wish I had that much hair after all these years, but I digress. Uh, yeah, the chart looks at what happens when the S&P 500 ends a streak similar to the one we're in now. You know, we've gone 569 days, so you know, a year and a half and change, without the S&P 500 falling 5% from a peak. And 
given what happened the last two days in the market, you know, sort of a reminder, if nothing else, that the streak's got to end sometime, which raises the question, what happens when it does? Is it a case where the market just sort of falls out of bed, or do you get something less than that? Uh, the short answer, if you look back at history, is less than that. And it's something that Sam Stovall, who's the chief investment strategist over at CFRA, did uh, in a report this week. He looked at 10 other periods after World War II where the S&P 500 went at least 250 days without falling 5% from a high. So what happens when those streaks end? On average, well, you, you, you get a decline of less than 10%. And I say that because six out of the 10 instances uh, fall into that category, which really means they turned out to be dips in the market as opposed to corrections, which you know we tend to talk about 10% drops as fitting that uh, particular category. Or bear markets with declines of 20% or more, you only had one of them, and that occurred uh, back in the early 1960s. So, you know, don't worry. Is, if his things point is, when you've seen such momentum to the upside without significant corrections, you're not likely to see that significant correction. That's what it comes down to, at least not initially, because, yeah. you know, we're talking about the losses that end the streaks here. So it's not like the market sort of turns on its head after uh, right. extended periods uh, of strength. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Thank you, Dave Wilson. This is Bloomberg. Oh, yeah, that'll get you in the mood, everybody. Uh, football, football, football. And, of course, we've got the Super Bowl coming up. Shares of 21st Century Fox, though, tumbling. A little bit of a foul there as investors weighed the $3 billion-plus price tag on the company's accord to carry Thursday night football. Let's talk about it with Jerry Smith. Follows Fox in uh, the world of media. He is our media reporter here at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So investors are saying, ah, yeah, we don't like this. Yeah, it's a really interesting reaction on Wall Street. I mean, you would think that when you win a bidding auction for NFL games, I mean, this is the most popular thing on television, you would think investors would be very excited about that. It used to be that investors would be excited, right? R right. I mean, the context of this is that NFL ratings um, have declined the last two years. Mm -hmm. So I think investors are looking at Fox paying $3 billion or so for these 11 games uh, over the next five years and, and saying, wait a minute, you know, if you look at the trend here, these ratings are declining. Are you going to be able to turn a profit uh, on, you know, selling advertising during these games? Well, and, and to that, I mean, uh, it, what's the price tag here? What are we talking about? Because one of the things leading up to this, this is one of the only deals that was going to come up at any anytime soon. Uh, so if anyone wanted to get involved in sports, if Amazon Prime wanted to get involved or Facebook wanted to get involved, there was thoughts that maybe they would actually bid up for this thing, and they may indeed have been bidders here, And right? CBS and NBC were bidders. Right. So, I mean, CBS and NBC did bid and, and Fox outbid them. Um, but the digital, um, there also is digital rights to these games that the NFL said they're going to announce in the coming weeks. And so there is the possibility that somebody like an Amazon or a Twitter or a Facebook uh, could win those rights as well. So, uh, I mean, that is the big question, I think, for, for TV sports going forward is 
Um, you know, when are some of these Silicon Valley giants that are dipping their toes into television? When are they going to really get into this? And so far, this is still going to a, a traditional TV network, but um, you know, there is a digital rights aspect of this as well. Jerry, we say three billion. We don't know for sure, though, right? These are just reports. This is reports. Yes. Um, I mean, based on your reporting and following all of this, you know, this is a, this could be a gamble, correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it's still, NFL is still the biggest thing on television. Uh, I mean, it still gets huge numbers. I mean, the Super Bowl's this Sunday, and it, it, it is most likely going to get over 100 million viewers. And but, people tune in to see it live. Right. It's. I mean, that's kind <laughs> of the, too. That's the thing about this is that it's, even though the ratings have declined for the NFL, I mean, you look at the top 50 broadcasts last year, I think 37 of them were NFL games. I mean, it's still, even though the ratings are declining, I mean, ratings are declining everywhere else. If you're an advertiser, you're still going to pay a lot of money for these commercials because you don't have anywhere else to go. There's nowhere else for you to reach a live audience, a big live audience that's actually going to watch your commercial these days. This might also mean more Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. Yeah, Troy yeah. Aikman, I said, yeah, no, yeah. I think Tony Romo is pretty good on CBS. I agree. I, I He's not on say. Fox. That's why I was. Yeah, Aikman. but this is yeah. This is more of the Fox folks on Thursday nights. Ugh. I think there's a lot of football out there. That's all I'm going to say. Monday night, Thursday Never enough, night, says Paul Brennan, our producer. Weekends. I'm with him. That's one of the theories for why the ratings are down. And Saturdays. Don't forget about Saturdays, college football. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Jerry Smith from Bloomberg News. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Indeed, time driving to the close. Just uh, less than 10 minutes left in the trading day, but a good time to look at the equity markets. We've got some help with that. Jim Russell, portfolio manager at Ball & Gainer, joins us right now uh, with a particular focus on income. Stocks that will actually give us income. Yes, we're talking about dividends. Um, and, uh, Jim, in this low-rate environment, uh, the, yeah, sorry, in what we had is a low-rate environment, uh, dividend-paying stocks were of great interest to a big section of the market. How does that change as we start to see the 2, the 5, and the 10 uh, start to uh, offer some better returns? Yeah, Corey, I think that's a question on everybody's mind. I appreciate you bringing it to uh, to our attention. Uh, we are, just to be clear, a income growth manager using all equities. Uh, it is all common stocks, no converts, no options, no derivatives, no leverage, um, and certainly no fixed income. So what we do is we focus on the growth of the dividend. We do think that the dividend is uh, really overlooked by a lot of the investing public. As well as the sell side, uh, we we are unaware of any sell side analysts that really forecast the dividend. We do that work uh, internally via the cash flows. But to your point, we think that high-yielding dividend stocks, which is not the area that we focus in on, will certainly be vulnerable in a higher rate environment. And we do see uh, rates um, normalizing for 2018, 19, perhaps uh, even beyond. So uh, areas of the market, such as telecom, REITs, utilities, uh, some staples are, are likely to be a bit vulnerable in that type of environment. Um, what kind of environment do your investors think we're in right now? And I ask that because yeah. after some of the selling that we saw over the last couple of days, a couple of days does not make a trend, I get it, but I'm just curious what you're hearing from those investors. <laughs> 
Yeah, Carol, that's a great question as well. I would tell you that our clients, uh, institutional and private clients, are highly skeptical of the very strong start that we've gotten off to uh, in 2018. They're they're a bit nervous. They're kind of looking over one shoulder saying, uh, surely this won't continue. Uh, aren't we due for a fall? So I think there's a degree of nervousness, a degree of realism that uh, to extrapolate uh, 2017 or early 18 trends would be irresponsible. So I, know, I understand that the sentiment uh, indicators out there, bulls, bears, other kinds of uh, investor sentiment are reaching highs, meaning, of course, that makes for a nervous market. Our uh, actual clients are much less bullish and much more concerned about protecting downside, which is where good dividend uh, growth type of investing uh, really helps. We, we do offer great downside protection. Our stocks simply don't go down as much as the market when volatility does rear its ugly head. Uh, so, so do you actually then, therefore, even in spite of rising rates, think that people are going to move more money towards dividend-paying stocks as they're concerned the market grows, even though the relative difference between a dividend-paying stock and a higher-yielding uh, 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 treasury or whatever is, is going to be uh, lessened? Yeah, Corey, it, it, it of course depends on what the client's uh, you know, specific needs are, the risk tolerance, income needs, well, et cetera. Uh, right. But uh, we do think that uh, dividend growth stocks are a great alternative, frankly, to fixed income. Uh, yes, there's a bit more volatility attendant to equities than fixed income, and we understand that. But we do think that if an, if an investor has a longer-term time horizon, a pre-retiree, a retiree, a foundation, an endowment, that uh, Great income flows can be garnered by income growth uh, types of investing, starting with a two and a half, three, three and a half percent yield, and perhaps uh, picking stocks that are able to grow that income 10 percent every year, perhaps a little bit more uh, in certain years. We are seeing uh, absolutely uh, from the tax package and strong economic growth, companies willing to uh, goose that dividend uh, in 2018, and we're hopefully beyond that as well. Repatriated funds will also be part of that as well. So we do think that. So, well, so we're uh, talking one-time dividends or dividend increase? Because what we saw last yeah. time was a couple of companies writing some really big one-time dividends, and that's a wonderful thing if you're long that stock when you suddenly get a big check. And, right. Uh, and, and are you trying to predict those now? Well, no, we're, we are absolutely we, – we are not big fans of the big one-time special dividend. We would much rather see a company grow its dividend at 9 percent and because of better economic trends or tax package benefits, perhaps lift that to a sustainable 11 percent annual growth rate. That is our sweet spot, and we think that's uh, where our clients would like us to be as well. Not only do, does it provide great downside protection, but these companies are benchmark competitive against the S&P 500. And secondly, the income uh, beats inflation with a type of, you know, call it 8, 9, 10% annual increase in the income with inflation, let's just say centered around 2%. Hey, one question I'd love to ask folks who've been in the market and seen a lot of different cycles, such as yourself, Jim, is what is it about this particular market cycle that stands out, is distinct, is different from what we've seen in the past? What's the same? Great question. Uh, you know, uh, I have seen this sort of thing uh, a couple of times in my career, which is now, you know, maybe north of 30 years. And every once in a while, the moons and stars align where inflation is low, the consumer's in a good mood, business spending looks like it's getting ready to hook up. Mm -hmm. You have global participation, rates are low, the Fed seems to be somewhat friendly, and now, of course, 
you had the federal government on your side in terms of tax package and possibly uh, an infrastructure spending. So I think those, Carol, those types of environments are candidly pretty rare right. and certainly don't last. And so uh, I would think that's somewhat unique. No question. Speaking of moons, it's a blue moon tonight. Do you know that? That's right. Oh, last night? No, I think it's tonight, Paul Brennan. It, it, yeah. Ugh, I guess I missed it. Paul Brennan, right. our producer, is also <laughs> our, our chief astronomer. <laughs> Jim Russell, good he'll to get doing, some time he'll be doing with horoscopes you. Horoscopes later. I guess so. Principal and portfolio manager at Ball and Gainer, twenty-two point four billion dollars in assets under management. Jim joining us on the phone from Cincinnati. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your Movers and Shakers on this Wednesday afternoon. The S&P 500, 267 names higher in the index, 233 lower, five unchanged. I'm going to talk, though, a little bit about Microsoft because those numbers already crossing uh, the Bloomberg. Microsoft, second quarter loss of... 82 cents a share? That seems kind of weird, doesn't it, Corey? Yes, it does. Well, let's, let's wait here a second to see what we get more yep. on this, because uh, uh, Microsoft, the, the expectation, of course, is not for a loss from Microsoft. No, this doesn't seem quite right. They are talking Gap includes a net charge of $13.8 billion related um, to, to the tax adjustment. To the so tax that, that adjustment. Okay. Uh, so the adjusted uh, profits expected from Microsoft, right. expected from Microsoft, were six point seven billion dollars, which is you know, which would have been a slightly bigger, one uh, percent larger than the last quarter. Second quarter revenue from Microsoft twenty eight point ninety two billion dollars. That's a little bit better than what uh, analysts were forecasting. They were looking for twenty eight point thirty nine. Again, those numbers just crossing. Quick check on Microsoft in the after hours, just down a hair, down about uh, two tenths of a percent, but lots more to be known. Qualcomm, as Charlie mentioned, also out. Uh, and they uh, first quarter adjusted EPS of uh, 98 cents a share. Uh, first quarter adjusted revenue of 6.04 billion. That's better than the forecast of 5.93. Taking a look at the second quarter, uh, looking for an adjusted EPS of 65 to 75 cents a share. And what is Qualcomm so, doing in the after hours? Just quickly down 1.2 percent. So the Microsoft results, uh, fantastic results. So uh, revenue of 28.9 billion dollars. Uh, that's up 12 percent year over year. Operating profits of 8.7 billion. That's up 10 percent year over year. Uh, and as we mentioned, there's a, there's a tax write-off here, or tax-related uh, uh, tax change. So let's – I usually don't like to look at non-GAAP, that is the adjusted number, but I will – in the case mm-hmm. of Microsoft – because they, they, they tend to do things in a, in, a, in a little cleaner way than some worse companies. Uh, but Microsoft results uh, include a, a big charge because of the tax changes in the, in the Jobs Act, uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, TCJA. But uh, uh, their, their, uh, their, gap, their non-GAAP profit of $7.5 billion um, is fantastic. So if you look at what their profit was uh, a year ago, it was $6.6 billion, which is say Microsoft in the 13 weeks of the fourth quarter made an extra billion dollars in profit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic quarter for this company. Uh, and it really shows the success that Satya Nadell has had moving their business onto the cloud. Uh, really powerful stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look into their intelligent cloud business. Right. Uh, revenues up there 15% uh, year over year. Uh, and that's, there's no currency impact there. Uh, and their server product, their Azure uh, business, right? Their Microsoft Azure business, which competes with um, uh, Amazon. Mm-hmm. 
up 98%. Which is interesting because the stock's been, I don't know whether investors are trying to make sense of it because the stock's just, uh, call it unchanged, it's been a little bit lower, not dramatically, and right now it's pretty much flat, so I think investors are trying to make sense. Hey, let's make sense of Facebook earnings just crossing the Bloomberg. Facebook, fourth quarter revenue, $12.97 billion. That tops an estimate of $12.55 billion. Fourth quarter EPS of $1.44 a share. Fourth quarter daily active users, right? We like to look at uh, what's going on on a daily or monthly use uh, usage basis at Facebook. $1.40 billion, that's a little light or maybe on par, $1.41 billion, Corey, uh, is the estimate that uh, people are looking. So both daily active and monthly active users uh, were up 14% year over year, uh, which is which is slower growth than they've had in the past, certainly, but also shows that the uh, what I like to call the, uh, the, the the consumption rate, which is to say how many people use Facebook every day. Most people on Facebook use Facebook every day. Not me. But that's not changing. No. You no. don't use Facebook any day. <laughs> so, you know. Sorry. I don't uh, do, they're doing fine without you. Uh, I know Also, they are. interestingly, a mobile advertising revenue was 89% of ad revenue, up from 84% a year ago. So increasingly, we're seeing that there's that, that people are moving, they're most of revenue, more than most, 89%, uh, people moving away from ever consuming on the desktop and everybody's on their phones. Stock is down 2.7% in the after hour shares. Now it's down about 3%, 3.5%. Um, so we are seeing Facebook, uh, One last thing on Facebook tend a little bit lower. Yeah, tend a- Headcount up 47%. They've got 25,105 employees. So 47%. Just adding like staff like crazy they're hiring. All right. Again, Facebook shares are down 3.4% in the after hours. Right now, Microsoft's down about a percent. We're going to be talking a little bit more about those names in just a moment. Let's get to the volatility index report. Uh, it is down 7%, down one point at 13.72. This is Bloomberg. All right. Dave, you're up. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us, our stocks editor, with his stock of the day. Right. You know, Corey, when a company resolves accounting issues, its shares often rise as investors regain some confidence in the financial statements. This wasn't the case for Roadrunner Transportation Systems, a trucking company whose ticker is RRTS. One year ago today, the company disclosed it would have to restate results for 2014, 2015, and the first three quarters of 2016 because of accounting errors. The review was later expanded back to 2011, Roadrunner's first full year as a public company. The results were released today. They showed Roadrunner overstated net income by about $66.5 million. The company said in a statement that accounting mistakes substantially impacted all financial statement line items and disclosures. And that's a quote in the six-year period. Roadrunner also disclosed the cost of restating results and refinancing debt reduced last year's earnings by an estimated $30 million. Company added that revenue was in line with the 2016 figure. You put it all together, Roadrunner shares fell to a record low of $5.46 during today's trading. They closed at $5.57 for a loss of 22%. And that's the steepest drop for the stock since those accounting errors first came to light. 
All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, Dave Wilson, with his stock of the day. Just watching some of our live blogs here on Facebook, Selena Wang, our technology reporter, saying that though the company, Facebook, beat on revenue, its daily active user accounts slightly missed estimates. That's one of the most important metrics that Wall Street cares about, and that's partly why the shares are trading down here in the after hours. And we are seeing uh, Facebook down about 3%. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.